a dear relationship to me, and I want to hopefully take a step uh, in deeper transparency this morning and share a little bit more about my life to you as a lead-in to our passage. I want to tell you how my wife and I uh, came to meet and um, got to know each other in God's plan, how God brought us together, and how we ended up being married. Um, Judy and I, we have known each other, uh, you know, in a non-dating and then dating and then married relationship just under 20 years. So I sort of did the math and we're coming up on our our 16th uh, wedding anniversary in May and then we knew each other for a year and a half and then she actually, I, I was able to talk her into dating me and so then we began to, to date, so sort of a three-year relationship before um, being married. And uh, so we've had eyes for each other um, that period of time, but it really is kind of a brief time in comparison to many who've been married much longer than that, but it was unique to me to think about how we um, got together because I, as some of you know, I went to college in Virginia on the East Coast at Liberty, and then after that went to the West Coast at Master's Seminary to uh, train to be a pastor. When I was on the East Coast, I was uh, studying to be a preacher, studying the original um, language of the Bible, and uh, made friends with a guy uh, my junior year where we went through pastoral training classes and preaching classes and Greek class. This is a guy who was a better student than me, so I kind of latched on to him um, during one semester. He actually, um, we pulled an all-nighter together where he taught me the entire semester of Greek um, that I had just kind of uh, checked out on. And so I was able to pull a, a C on my final exam and, and pass the class. But during that all-nighter, he uh, told me about this woman in his life who he had dated for um, some time up in upstate New York at a Bible institute. So he pulls this gal's picture out, and it was, lo and behold, Judy. And so that was my first introduction to who um, she was. And she was up in New York, and I was down in Virginia being introduced to this gal who had broken his heart. This guy was big man on campus, a spiritual leader, and she had just, um, you know, cut his heart out and said, you know, we're going to break up. And so I'm sitting there, and, you know, one of the reasons he was pulling me through my semester is I had been broken up with that, that semester, and so, you know, I had, had no attention on Greek. And so um, and we were kind of talking to each other about these things, and ultimately I said to him, look, you need to let this girl go. Just, just you know, she's broken up with you a couple times. You need to just uh, let this thing um, sort of go off into eternity, right? And so, so I, you know, we finished out our time at, at Liberty. I went to seminary on the West Coast. And when I went there, what happened is uh, the Master's College hired me to work in their student life department. That's what put me through seminary. So I worked at the college, and in God's plan, God was bringing Judy to finish up college at Master's. Um, she had taken two years of Bible Institute work and then took two years off to pay for that and then was coming to finish college um, after that time. And so we were landing in California sort of at the same time. She was showing up. I met somebody that knew who she was and actually knew who her former boyfriend was from that institute up in New York. And so I was primed to meet this gal. It was just interesting that way. And she's at the bottom of the stairs of the dorm she's moving into. I'm like, okay, I kind of know about you, so I'll move you in. So I offered to uh, bring her bags upstairs, or I, I think actually it was your best friend who's just kind of putting it together. Hey, why don't you help, you know, this out? So there we are, and um, 
we began, began to be friends and, and hang out together. She really wasn't interested in me. I had, back then, bushy, blonde surfer hair, and she was an English literature major. So, you know, it doesn't really mesh at that point, but we still were friends nevertheless and spent time together. And she always wanted to know how much I knew about her prior dating relationship. So I would try to work that, you know, in the system and, and milk it a little bit. And again, I had no interest dating her whatsoever, right? Yeah, um, anyway, so, uh, and so there's no conflict of interest in what I said to her, but she was still kind of had this lingering thought, am I supposed to get back together with that guy that was your friend and I used to date, and, I, and he was kind of pursuing her and sending, email had just started, so these things were coming on. I said, look, let me just tell you, you know, my heart to yours, Judy. You need to let this guy go. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is so. You've got some mystical hang-up here. You're trying to discern God's will in some weird, strange, mystical way. Let him go. Now, two, two weeks later, we started dating. But, I mean, look, there was no, you know, no connection there. But all that to say, the Lord does uh, work out some unique ways that we find each other in marriage and marriages happen. Um, but what I began to find out as we finished our 15th year of marriage is that we've only just begun in terms of knowing each other. I, I uh, remember some counsel in a young marriage class where these uh, mentors who had been married, you know, nearly 50 years, they looked at the crowd and they just said, listen, you don't even begin to get to know each other in marriage until the first 15 is clocked. And we're going, wow, what is that? And then when I came here, uh, we, uh, we, as pastors and wives, we all went out together one time for dinner, and one of the topics of conversation going around the room was, how long have you been married? And so, you know, it's, you've got the Pauls there, you had some others, you know, the Webbers and different ones, so you, you, the Carlbergs, the, the Davises, you, you've got these people 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, the Pauls, you know, four, we're coming up on 40 years. Okay, hey, Jeff, Judy, y'all just got here. How long have y'all been married? And we're like, <coughs> 13 years, you know, we, we've just begun, you know, and, and it, it was a reminder to me as I looked at this text this week about Paul's passion to know Christ, how he had been a believer for 30 years by the time he wrote these words. Damascus, God entering into his life, him meeting Christ face to face, happened 30 years before he wrote this. And all he's writing about in the paragraph we're going to read is about knowing Christ. And it's almost like he wants to know Christ afresh in new ways for the first time. Because at Damascus, he was just introduced to Christ, and 30 years is a drop in the bucket. When you think in terms of Christ, who is the one inexhaustible relationship that we can have. Knowing Christ, and we'll, we'll get to know Christ now, we'll get to know Christ over the decades, but we will be knowing Christ throughout all of eternity, and we'll never plumb the depths of the riches of knowing Christ intimately and personally. And as it is with marriage, if you just think about what happened to you when you got married, you know, that story, how you got together, the Lord brought you together, and you rely only on that, your marriage isn't going to be healthy and perhaps won't last very long. But by contrast, if you invest in a daily on a daily basis where you say, you know what, I'm just beginning to know this person. You know, it's been 20 years, 25 years. We're still learning things about each other. We're going to learn about learn things about each other for our whole lifetime and you invest with that in mind and you pursue each other with that ki kind of passion, you know what's going to happen? You will have a healthy 
relationship. You have a marriage that will endure, that will last. And that's what it takes. Ongoing pursuit of the other person. It's the same way in the Christian's walk with Christ. You can't just think, yeah, I got saved. Yeah, this happened. That was a great conversion story. You have to pursue Christ and pursue him with a passion like the deer panting for the streams of water your whole life. And that's what cultivates a healthy walk with the Lord where you grow. Well, let's read the text. This is where I'm coming from this morning and springing out of Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, because like, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, last week we came to verse 7, and Paul brings the church, as the church reads this or heard this, to a crossroads, to a, a fork in the road, where you have to make a decision, in essence, to either trust in your own religious acquirements, attainments, your own religious duties, what you think is valuable about yourself into what you've done, or, by contrast, to see that is loss and Christ is gain. That's the crossroads in this text. Paul is wanting to show and put himself out there and say, I was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. Nobody can out-religion me. And I want to show you, church, that all of my religious attainments and accolades and everything I've inherited religiously needs to be boiled away. And when it's boiled away, what you have left matters. And it should be Christ and Christ alone. You know, I was talking to Judy about boiling things. I'm not a person who cooks anything um, beyond scrambled eggs. And uh, <clears throat> that's about it. But what I was asking her about is this phenomenon where she'll put a roast in a big pot and, and it will begin to boil and you know something will sort of rip away from the meat and surface to the top. And that's boiling away the fat. Or, you know, it works with chicken, I heard as well. Anyway, but you're boiling away the fat and you skim it, you skim it away. And what you have left is the, the, the good, juicy meat. And I think Paul is doing that here where he's saying, I'm putting myself out there in all of my inherited accolades, all of my achievements, so that we can just boil them away in the blaze and glory of Christ and show that he is of supreme value and anything I've done is just lost. It's just worthless. It doesn't matter. Paul, in essence, is modeling what the Christian must do to gain Christ, and that is to see all that they've done as lost, to literally come to the end of yourself. When you come to the end of yourself, all that you have left is Christ. And so let's just pick up some speed, beginning at verse 4 again. 
He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In verse 5, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. He had an unparalleled resume in verses 4 through 6. And we talked last week about his inherited privileges, his uncontestable status as a Pharisee. And then he begins by saying, look, I was circumcised from the beginning. On the eighth day, as a child, I was destined to keep the whole law. It was of the people of Israel. He was racially pure. His parents were Jews. He was schooled in Greco-Roman culture, and he was acquainted with, with the greats. But he spoke Hebrew and was trained in the Hebrew language. He was respected according to his tribe. You can see that in verse 5 of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the two select tribes that had been faithful to the Davidic covenant. And he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, which means that this man was educated by a master. Acts 22 says he was educated by the top of the line, Gamaliel, who taught him the law of God. But he, didn't know, he not only had inherited um, these accolades and these privileges, but he also had a personal achievement list, and he had three of those. He was affirmed by his own title as Pharisee. There were only 6,000 Pharisees walking around on the earth at one time who were master keepers of the law. As to zeal, verse 6, this was a guy who was passionate in terms of trying to stamp out any sort of movement that would come against Judaism, against God's religion. So he, as a defender of God, he would... He would affirm executions where Christians would be killed and he would drag people away and haul them off into prison for the faith. So this was part of his achievement list, his passion, his title as a persecutor. And then as a law keeper, he saw himself as perfectly righteous, blameless under the law. He thought he had done everything right. And yet it was all hypocrisy. Uh, his righteousness actually became a barrier between him and God. Things that he was doing, things that he was trusting in, things that he had thought he had achieved in the name of God was actually countering his relationship to God. It was a block. It was a barrier. It was searing his conscience where he actually thought he was righteous, and he really wasn't. It was the exact opposite. And so God met him on the road to Damascus and and transformed his life and created in his heart a, an unparalleled resolution. I mean, he had an unparalleled resume, which was really superficial and worth, worthless, and it brought him to a breaking point where he came to the end of himself, and he saw Christ, and he saw Christ as supreme, superior, and perfect, and it undid Paul, and it undid his pride. And so he made a resolution, and it begins in verse 7. Look back at verse 7. But whatever gain, I should say from the original, gains, whatever gains I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now remember, we talked about this last week. Uh, he's using accounting language. And for you accountants, and some, several of you have come up after sermons, last sermon and last week, people say, oh, you know, let's, let's tease this accounting language out farther and farther. This is as far as my accounting goes, is this illustration, okay? Anyway, it's like you have a spreadsheet or a ledger sheet, and on one side you have one column, and that is where Paul was putting in his, what he was accruing, his 
um, deposits. And his deposits are there, but he finds out once he meets and encounters Christ that as he looks back at his deposit column, that really what he has found is debits. It's not just zero, it's negative. It's what he has done wrong against the Lord by trying to put in things in his column that are in the plus category. So his pluses were really not just zeros, but minuses. And I use the illustration of, of looking at this um, two-column ledger on your computer screen, and you, you put in all these things, and the screen shuts down, and then you wake up, and it's as if the Lord illumines you to a new screen where you see nothing. You, you see emptiness. You see distance between yourself and the Lord. What's the other column? The other column is the right column, and that is, what Christ has done on your behalf. It's Christ's righteousness. It's all pluses. It's all what the Lord did in his obedient life here on earth, in his perfect status as being God and man on earth on our behalf. The righteousness of Christ, that's all that we can cling to. And that's what he's doing. He's saying, whatever gains I had, I've counted those as loss for the sake of Christ. I want Christ and Christ alone. He was the Christian killer who was now behind bars in Rome as a persecuted Christian because he had Christ. And guess what? He was winning in his heart. He had Christ. He had a supremely valuable relationship with the Lord. And he, guess what? Would not have it any other way. He's behind bars, but he's got Jesus. And that's all he wanted. It's all he needed. And that is the essence of, of saving faith. When you're saved, and I know many of us grow in our understanding of our faith, and so we don't understand all these things when we first believe often times, but when you're saved, you, you look at what you tried to do and achieve as something that is completely irrelevant to your faith. You, you look at it as loss, and you go, I have a distaste for this, and all I want to taste is Christ. That's saving faith. This is the foundation for spiritual growth, is explaining real faith in this way. And so he goes further on to explain it in verse 8. You have illumined accounting in verse 7, this radical reversal in verses 7 and 8, illumined accounting and then gainful accounting in verse 8. Look at it. It says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The word loss here, he's counting everything as loss. It's, it's literally, it's, it's damage. That's what the word can mean, damage. It was damaging to me. I count it as wrong, as damaging to my faith compared to the surpassing worth. And surpassing worth is valuing something that you have. That's what this word means. I have Christ. And that's more valuable than what I have lost, what was damaging to me. And what is that worth? It's knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Look at the words, my Lord. There's great intimacy in that. Now, again, he's been 30 years with the Lord. He knows Jesus, and he's just, I think, beginning to grasp the fact that Jesus is his Lord. That's the way that we should view Christ. I know Christ is God and he's awe-inspiring and he's completely holy. He holds us accountable. He knows our hearts. It can be intimidating to think about Christ, can't it? It can be something that sometimes we 
we want to kind of distance ourselves from, as if we could distance ourselves from the accountability of Christ. But you need to understand, Jesus loves you, and he called you to be his child, and there's intimacy in the relationship. He drew you to himself as a Christian. You didn't work this relationship into being. You didn't make this thing happen for yourself. Um, You're not just hanging on by a thin thread in your walk with the Lord. Jesus loves you. He knows you. And he's your Lord personally and intimately. Um, To know Christ, that word know is gnosko. It's, It's speaking of intimacy. The Greek version of the Old Testament, the Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew, but Um, As it was retranslated over the centuries, there was a Greek version. And the Greek word is gnosko for where Adam knew his wife Eve and they had a child and it was Cain. Genesis 4 verse 1. It's intimate knowledge. It's intimacy at the deepest level. How do you cultivate intimacy in a relationship? Well, if you think in terms of a spouse or a good friend, it's, it's spending time together, right? It's walking through life together. It's sometimes just clocking time with people. Over the years, you just know people, and you know that you're friends, and, and you're learning each other almost without effort. You're going through experiences together. If you go through suffering together, suffering often brings intimacy When you're in a relationship with somebody, and you know you've been there if you've had this, it's where somebody's life is falling apart, and they call you. And there you are, and their life is falling apart and fragmenting, and the pieces are unraveling, and you're there for them, and you're deep breathing together, trusting God together, you're counseling this person. And as as you go through that experience, you're bonding on deep levels. That's this kind of knowing. I mean, why does Christ put us through suffering? It's not just to make us like him. It's to draw us together with him, more deeply, intimately connected in our relationship to him, knowing Christ. Do you want to know Christ? Well, it takes this kind of commitment. It's not just knowledge about, I know he saved me. It's, I know he saved me, and so that's rolling forward in daily pursuit of Christ, my Lord, who I want to know more and more. It's going through life together with him as a person in your life. It's talking to him, which is prayer. It's singing to him, which is prayer and worship. It's journaling to him, which can take on as a form of prayer. It's reading about him. And as soon as you read something about him that strikes you in your heart, you worship him because of it. It's that kind of intimate walk with Christ that creates an ongoing knowledge of him, knowing him intimately. That's what he's saying, and he's saying further in verse 8, For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. Again, stop there. This is where he's saying this surpassing value of knowing Christ makes all the stuff that I was trying to do to prop myself up, that's rubbish. It's actually a very, very um, strong word. Rubbish is scubalon. It's the word for dung. It's, it's Paul basically using something that's like an explicative here in the text. I mean, he is saying that works righteousness, that Phariseeism, that is a grotesque, 
Scubalon, right there. It's gross. It's nasty. It's a stench in my nostrils. It's distasteful. It, it's disgusting what I was trying to do. I mean, Paul was disgusted by that religious effort. It wasn't just, well, that was a good try, and I was going for it, and I was ignorant, and, you know, and now I got Jesus. No, it's, I am disgusted by what I used to be. I was a hypocrite, a calloused hypocrite against God. And I was in deficit column, and now I have Christ. That's saving faith. That's foundational faith to a person's spiritual growth. It's where you see Christ is gain. Look at this. In order, and I, you, you can't miss this, it's, he's seeing his religious works as loss, as rubbish, which triggers something. In order that I may gain Christ. If you feel like you're spiraling in your Christian life and you've not grown in a long time, go back to your roots and remember that I used to try to work my way into fellowship with God and say, I don't want to do that anymore. That's disgusting to me. That's distasteful to me. All I want is Christ. That's the trigger point to intimate knowledge and relationship with Christ. That's real faith. And he goes on in the next couple of verses to explain real faith. We're going to have to put our thinking caps on for a few moments as we go into these next two verses. These verses are, they take some work to think through. They're a little bit complicated, but this is the footing and foundation. This is the concrete slab that you have to have to build the house on in terms of knowing God. If you want to know Christ, you got to get this foundation right. If you get this foundation, this concrete slab right and in place, then it spawns spiritual growth. In essence, the footing and foundation is your salvation. And from having a concrete, clear understanding of your salvation, that's where you can begin to build your walk and relationship with the Lord. And I think we all want a vibrant relationship with Christ. So let's go back to the foundation. Verse 9. He says, beginning in verse 8, In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Stop there. Found in Him. The word found is where we get the English word eureka. It's the idea that, that you're discovering something. Okay? You came to Christ. You believed on Christ. God stirred in your heart, saving faith, and, and you exercised that faith, and you believed on the Lord. And then as you understood what happened to you, you sort of look back and you go, wow, I am in Christ. The more I learn about Christ, the more profound it is to understand that I'm actually in Him. And the picture is one of safety, security, it's the security of your faith. It's that you are found in him. When people see you, they should see a reflection of this in your life, that Christ is in you and you are in Christ. It could be portrayed, and it is in other places, that the very life that Jesus lived on your behalf, everything he did right, everything he didn't do that would have been wrong, all of that is accounted to you. That, that is counted to you, and it is, it is literally like a robe of righteousness around you. It's outside of you. It's nothing you drummed up in your own works or in your own heart. It was something that God bequeathed 
to you, granted to you, where he declares you righteous. You're in Christ. Another place that um, brings, fills this picture out is the idea of Romans 6, where we've been baptized into Christ. We are part of his body. And he's saying, Eureka, I, I've lost everything and found that I am in him. And he explains it further here in verse 9. What does it mean to be found in him? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Stop there. He's saying, look, I am in Christ. Why? Because I stopped trying to get there on my own efforts. I'm going to use kind of a trivial, silly illustration, but, you know, James Montgomery Boyce, who I respect deeply and was a great theologian and pastor, he used this illustration, so I'm using it. And what he said is, look, the idea of trying to work up your own righteousness is as silly as using Monopoly money to buy your groceries. You know, I thought about that. I thought, you know, I, I have played Monopoly. I don't love the game. I like it when I'm winning. But, um, <laughs> but Monopoly money is, is fun during the game, and, you know, you use it. It's different colors and whatever, smaller size. But it would be really silly to go to Carr's grocery store and just show up and check out with Monopoly money. And I was thinking of how silly that would be, and it almost inspires me to do it, you know, just to see, just to see how people would respond. Like, okay, yeah, you know, I've swiped the card. Here we go, you know. And just wa- and it'd be funny for about, you know, three seconds, and then going into about the tenth second, they'd be like, man, you're weird. You know, what are you doing? It's strange. And that's Paul's point here. He's saying, look, I was found in Christ, and it's ridiculous to think that I got myself there. That's what Jesus did for me it wasn't by me keeping the law but verse 9 that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith now it's important to understand the use of faith in receiving righteousness because you could easily begin to be tempted to think okay we're talking about how being in Christ was not by religious effort it was by nothing that I did. I mean, why, how does faith play into this? And literally, the word here, it depends on faith, could be confusing to you. That phrase, the idea that, hey, there's something that this whole thing is depending on with me, exercising faith. Faith is simply believing. It's as simple as trusting, and yet it's not part of what saves you. How does that work? How do you gel that together? Well, you need to think of faith as instrumental. God does require faith when someone gets saved. Remember the Philippian jailer where he came and he was at the end of himself ready to commit harikira in the prison. And, you know, all the prisons had been, prison doors had been opened. The shackles had fallen off. All the prisoners stayed there. Paul and Silas were worshiping God. And um, the jailer showed up and he's going, wow, you're still here. I was going to off myself and you're still here. And, and Paul says, and he says to Paul, what must I do to be saved I want your Jesus. And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe, exercise faith, and you'll be saved. There is a trigger mechanism dynamic going on in Scripture. John 3, 16, whosoever believes in him will not perish. You are called to believe. And when you believe, God gives you Christ's righteousness. That is the way the Bible speaks of salvation. Romans chapter 5 says, those who believed... We're justified. You're justified by faith. That's a teaching all through Romans. Justification is the righteousness of Christ credited to your account. 
It's outside of you righteousness that comes to your rescue and is there forever on your behalf. The life you couldn't live that Christ lived for you is given to you. So how does faith work in that? Well, I'm going to uh, use someone else's illustration. John Piper, in a book he wrote, uh, Counted Righteous for Christ, um, used this regarding his son, but um, I'm going to um, sort of crotsonate um, the illustration because it's very ap- apropos. Um, I, and my son isn't in the room, so I'll, I'll use him. And he actually gave me permission, but Logan, let's just use him in this um, instance. Uh, let's just say Logan had a messy room, hypothetically, (laughs) completely off the record, right? I mean, just hypothetically. I mean, one of the things I actually enjoy doing on uh, Saturdays is um, this, it's a skill that I'm developing. It's uh, a hobby skill. It's I clean rooms in my house. And um, yeah, I do. I I don't like messy rooms, so I'll, I'll sometimes dive into the fray and begin to organize and, and clean the room up. And I did that as um, a, a, re- a relaxation method for me yesterday. And so um, anyway, let's just say Logan had a messy room and he was asking me, Dad, um, could, I, could I go skiing? Well, let's make it, you know, last Monday. Last Monday, and I'm going to school. And so at the end of the day, can, in the afternoon, can I go skiing at Hilltop? And I would say, okay, well, um, as you wipe the sleep out of your eye, you've got a half hour and you have to clean the room. And then if, if you have a clean room, when you come home from school, then you can go skiing. And so that's the promise. Clean room equals you get to go skiing. And so Logan comes home and he discovers that, oh no, I want to go skiing, but I forgot to clean my room. Fancy that. It would never happen. But anyway, I forgot to clean my room. And so I'm stuck, and I'm sorry. But then he opens his door, and he looks in there, and the room is spotless. Why? Because I cleaned it for him on his behalf. Did he clean the room? No, I cleaned the room. And so he walks in, and this is sort of how faith in what Christ only did works. Here's the faith picture. The faith picture is Logan being smitten in his heart and softened and says, oh, Dad, I apologize. I said I would have, I was going to clean my room, and I am so sorry for that. And I'm going to accept my consequences and not go skiing because I didn't hold up my end of the bargain. Well, this is how it works. Faith is a link at this point, or that, that picture of repentance and sorrow and sadness is a link to not what he did, but what was done for him. And then I can say, listen, and I wouldn't always do this, but listen, Logan, I promised that if your room was clean, then you could go ski at Hilltop. And based on the fact that I'm seeing that you are sorry for what you've done, and and you understand that this promise now can apply to you. You didn't clean the room. Did he clean it? No, I cleaned it. That's the basis for you being able to go. And the promise is kept because of what I did, not because of what you did. But the link to that promise, the, the connection to that promise, is a heart that has melted over what's happened on his behalf. Do you see that? That's faith. That's where our hearts are melting because the Holy Spirit um, illumines our hearts to see our sin and soften our hearts and see that we can't save ourselves. We can't, we can't achieve eternal promises on our behalf. We can't do that. And so I'm sorry for what I've done. And the Spirit of God does that in our hearts. And we believe in a promise of something that was done on our behalf, which is Christ's death on the cross. 
that's what he did on our behalf. And so God uses our faith instrumentally to connect us to what he did. And he counts what he did on our behalf so that we can stand fully righteous before him. This is the foundation of knowing God. You got to get this right. You didn't save yourself. You didn't work up enough religious effort to put yourself right with God. It's what Jesus did on your behalf. It's his promises that God is following through on his behalf for his glory. And then he loves you and loves the fact that your heart has melted over that promise. And he even brought that melting effect to happen in the first place. That's faith. And that is the righteousness of Christ applied It depends. Look at this. It comes through faith, through that heart-melting connection in Christ, and then the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness is from God, and it's applied to our account. And it's on this basis that we know Christ. Paul's deep commitment to Christ is verses 9 through 11. It's based on the righteousness of Christ. It's what... um, comes through faith what John Stott, this great pastor from the UK, said, it's the empty hand of faith. This is faith. We say thank you for what you've done on our behalf. And it's out of that that is born a desire to know Christ. Look at verse 10. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You know what Paul is doing here? He's looking at the gospel in reverse. 1 Corinthians 15 says this is the gospel, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, was buried, and he rose again. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. That's the gospel. In in short, to use a little mnemonic device, it's the D, the B, and the R, the death, the burial, and resurrection. It's a good way to remember. What is the gospel? Start there, D, B, R. Well, Paul's working in reverse here, and he starts with R. (laughs) And he says, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You know what he's saying there? His knowledge of Christ is looking future. Now, we have a relationship with him now, but what inspires a deeper relationship with Christ is not trying to figure out your life and your struggles and your trials with Jesus here and now only. It's a faith that goes, you know what? Life's hard now, but I'm already looking ahead to the resurrection. Jesus rose, and I'm looking to being with Christ there then. So there's an already dynamic, and there's a future dynamic with Christ. And faith that's strong and optimistic and, and enlivened is future-looking faith. It always is. You remember the footing and foundation? You have a strong, clear, gospel, concrete slab, and then you're looking to glory. Yeah, Paul was in prison. Paul was suffering. Paul was having a tough time. But he knew the power of God had raised Jesus. That same power was in his life and was promoting a future-driven faith where he's looking to being with Christ in glory. It's the power of the resurrection. And understanding this power, And accessing this power is how you go through suffering. Look at this in verse 10. And may share his sufferings. Why would you want to suffer for Christ? Because you know that you've got heaven guaranteed. You have a future resurrection that's going to happen. So suffering is doable here. That's a hard thing. I I think often, what would I do? You know, I lose one of my children. You know, you have near-death experiences. You have things that happen to you. 
You, you have people that die. You have things ripped away from you. You think, how strong is my faith? Well, you've got to have a strong footing and foundation, and you've got to believe in the resurrection. You've got to have something back here. You've got to have something out there if you're going to make it in here. You've got to go through suffering, but you've got to be fully stabilized here in the righteousness of Christ alone. It wasn't what you did, and a guarantee of the resurrection in the future, and that's how you can make it and grow in relationship to your Lord through suffering. And it makes sense of suffering. And it makes sense of even death. I mean, Paul didn't know when he was going to die. He was either going to die immediately, he was going to die by, you know, an illness one day, or he was, you know, going to be raptured. And that's what leads us to verse 11. He says, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Verse 11 isn't where he's going, well, you know, I, you know, I have this faith in Christ and I hope it works out and I hope I really am saved. No, he's not questioning whether he's saved. He's saying by any means possible, whether it's, you know, death by execution, head on the block, whether it's a terminal illness or disease, whether it's a circumstance where we suddenly die. You know, you think this way. How am I going to die? What's going to happen? Probably not execution. Um, maybe car wreck or accident. Um, could be terminal disease. Could be old age. Or rapture, right? Or rapture. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, any means possible, but what I'm looking to is the resurrection from the dead, where I'm raised whole, physically, spiritually, blameless before my Lord. This is knowing Christ. This is what it means to grow. Let me ask you this. Are you growing in Christ? Are you? It's my responsibility from the Word of God to ask your heart, are you growing? Because if you're not growing, you need to grow. You're supposed to grow. Expect to grow in this life. You're supposed to be a growing Christian. And if you're not growing, perhaps you haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to show you that you need some things to boil away still. You need to let some things go. You need to renounce and denounce some of your performance ethic that you're holding on to to make you feel good about your life. Let it all boil away. Come to the end of yourself. See that you can't do it on your own. You can't save yourself. You can't keep yourself. It's only Christ. You, you look at that column and you say zero and negatives, and, and it's dung, it's waste, it's a stench, and my gain is Christ. Let it all boil away and fall into the arms of Christ and look to the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I pray, God, that as we turn our hearts to worship you and contemplate the cross, Lord, that we would do, with, do so with a strengthened heart because we have leaned into the gospel as you have shown it to us in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.